but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. We begin a brand new series today, so we have a brand new verse we get to memorize together. Would you say this verse with me? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now you've mumbled that well, but I would love you to use your out loud voices. Would you stand with me and let's say that together, church. Say that with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1-8. Great job. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the truth of this verse, that your Holy Spirit is alive and present and powerful right here, right now. And what we're about to discover in this book, I believe, you want to do it again. We just want to ask you, Father, change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated if you would. Hey, but real quick, before we get started in what we're going to go through today, which I'm so excited about, I just got to give you a quick report about last week, Easter Sunday, which was such a special day here at LifePoint, where we got to celebrate the cornerstone of our faith with, with really going through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to give you some really good news. At the end of that service last Sunday, we had 10 people give their life to Jesus and surrender their faith. Amen? Amen. Oh, if there's ever anything we want to celebrate, it's that. And for all of those of you who give, all of those of you who serve, and all those ministries that make this place happen, you have a part in what God did here last weekend and what he wants to do in the future. By the way, if you made that decision, I just want you to know that the next best step you can take is to go public with your faith. And we have a baptism that's scheduled on May the 16th. If you've never made uh, your faith public, if you've known and walked with Christ for a while, but you've just never taken this significant spiritual step, I just want you to know that date. We'll tell you more about it between now and then, but we'd love for you to consider taking this step. One of the things about salvation is it's always personal, but it was never intended to be private. And so we'd love you to encourage you to go public with your faith. May 16th, we'll have a baptism for you to do that. All right, last week we ended the story, it feels like, as we walked through the final week of Jesus, and we saw the crucifixion, and then we saw the resurrection. And it's tempting to think, isn't it? Jesus rose from the dead, the end. But a better way to write the story is, once upon a time, Jesus rose from the dead, and the story began. The question is, where does the story go? Because we see Jesus' life, it's about 30 years, 33 years. And then the book of Acts is the next 30 years. It begins just a few days after his resurrection, and we get the next 30 years. Where did this whole Christian thing come from? Where did this whole church thing come from? We get 30 years in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then we get the next 30 years in the book of Acts. We get to pick up the story, but here's what's interesting. The disciples, after all this happened, and they've got this massive miracle where a dead man's walking, right? Like, I'm going to follow that guy, right? 
And, and they're in that place, but they're also at a crossroads because they didn't expect to be there. Their world has been turned upside down for three consecutive years as they follow Jesus doing these miracles. He dies and they think that's it. He rises from the dead. They're blown away. Then he ascends into heaven and then they're just sitting there. And they find themselves in an unexpected place, wondering, where do I go from here? It turns out it's a crossroads that all of us find ourselves in in multiple times throughout our lives. And it turns out that when we're in the unexpected place, how we respond determines the quality and direction of our life. The unexpected places are unavoidable. Sometimes it feels like things aren't fair. Sometimes it feels like I've done something wrong. Sometimes it feels like life is boring. Sometimes it feels like something great has happened. I've got a great opportunity, but I find myself in an unexpected place. What do I do? Well, in chapter 1 of Acts, we're going to get one of the very first steps we should always take when we find ourselves in an unexpected place. Hey, as a, as a world, we're in an unexpected place, aren't we? We didn't expect a year ago to be in a global pandemic and with all the implications that that's had. As a church, we're kind of in this place where we're in the middle of some changes, right? With new leadership and, and we're sort of going, okay, where do we go from here? This is the way life is. You probably have things in your own personal life where you find yourself once again in that unexpected place. And we ask this question that the disciples were asking. Where do you go from here? And all throughout this book, we keep seeing them at that crossroads again and again. And there's so much we get to learn from this great book. But right out of the gate, I believe we discover the very first thing we should always do when we find ourselves in an unexpected place. Now, one of the things we've got to just kind of point out before we jump into the book of Acts, I know, I know you got your Bibles and you're ready to go. By the way, I was talking to Don and Roberta right beforehand. They got their Bibles and they're ready to go. Two out of three right there have their Bibles, and I just wanted to kind of point that out. Yeah, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, there's some Bibles in front of you, in the pew in front of you, that you can borrow from us. By the way, if you don't have one, we want to donate that to you. That is our gift to you. Last week, we had between 15 and 20 Bibles taken. People who walked in and didn't own a Bible, and they walked away owning a Bible. I love that. We want you to be in God's Word, so we offer those to borrow. If you don't own one, you do now. We're going to look at Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament here in just a second. But I just want to tell you, before we dive into the book of Acts, one thing that you got to know is after Jesus rose from the dead, he went and told every one of his disciples, we see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm going to give you a new assignment. And he said, from now on, here is what you do. I'm risen, I've conquered death, and here's what I want you to do. Three words. Go make disciples. Right? You go, okay, that's not too hard. Well, guess what the disciples did at the very beginning? They said, all right, go make disciples. You know what they did? They decided to sit and be disciples. Is that the, what he said to do? No. But in 2021, let's be honest, it's the tension that we all have, isn't it? I, I, sometimes I would rather sit and be a disciple than go and make disciples. So it's the go and make where it's like make or break, right? So that kind of rhymed. I kind of should have used that one. Go and make. Can you say that with me out loud, those two words? Say it with me. Go. You are smart. You're a smart group. You already have. You're smarter than the disciples. You already know more than they knew. That's what Jesus said over and over. He didn't want anybody to miss it. Whatever you do, go and make. And we're going to watch. They didn't quite get it right at first, but eventually they did. Now, if I were titling the book of Acts, which, of course, is not necessarily inspired, 
But the book of Acts, if I were entitling, instead of calling it Acts of the Apostles, I would call it Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit that's the star of this book, not the Apostles. And that's a real important lens to put on as we read through the book because every one of the apostles are no longer with us. I know that's not news to you, but guess who is still with us? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still with us. The Holy Spirit is still... You can clap for the Holy Spirit. I don't know who that was, but let's go. That was great. I've never been at a church that clapped for the Holy Spirit, but I'm in now. You guys are, you guys are great. In fact, I want you to say this truth with me. The Holy Spirit is still alive and powerful. Say that out loud with me. The Holy Spirit is still. And if we believe that, as we read through the book of Acts, what we see him do there, he can do again. And that's why this is important. When we walk through this, it's easy to make the apostles the heroes. But it won't take long to realize they're knuckleheads like us. But the Holy Spirit was doing something supernatural through them. And that's powerful. Now you say, well, how powerful is the Holy Spirit? I think it can be illustrated in two maps. The Holy Spirit's power can be illustrated in two maps. Because the first 30 years of Jesus, the 30 years he was on earth, I want you to see this map which represents Jesus' ministry, which is about a 100-mile radius. You see the Sea of Galilee. He would come down to Jerusalem and all the ministry through the Gospels that you would see Jesus do. And there would be literally hundreds of people who would come to follow Jesus. Beautiful thing. Jesus leaves and says, it's better for me to leave so that I can send the Holy Spirit. In the next 30 years, after the Holy Spirit comes, watch this next map. This is now the area of the Holy Spirit's work. You see Israel down in the bottom right? Now instead of a 100-mile radius, we're looking at a 10,000-mile radius. Instead of a few hundred who know and follow Jesus, now we have over 100,000, and that doesn't include Gentiles who are now following Jesus. Christianity is exploding. The church is exploding because the Holy Spirit was powerful and active and doing something incredibly unprecedented. The Holy Spirit is the star of this book and we want to make sure as we read it we see him move over to more than 50 times you'll see the holy spirit doing something and working throughout the book of acts now acts is a wonderful wonderful book it's a book that really is like the hinge in the new testament it's a transitional book you'll see it move from those four gospels all the way to those latter epistles we call them paul's epistles and then the general epistles these letters at the end of the new testament if you don't understand acts it's hard to understand the rest of the new testament it's a profoundly important book and it is our story it is the church's story life point began 32 years ago but it taps into a story that began 2,000 years ago. This is the birth of the church. Often it's called the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then we get to Acts. And I just want to tell you, be ready because we're about to go on a ride and we get to see one of the greatest 30 years in Christian history as we go through this book of Acts. I'm just a little bit excited, and I hope you are too. So turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and let's begin at the very beginning, verse number 1 of this great book. And it begins, and it reveals something right out of the gate. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about what Jesus began to do and to teach. So right out of the gate, here's what we learn. This book is a sequel. That the author of this book, Luke, or Dr. Luke, he also wrote 
the book called, say it with me, Oh, some of you are sharp. You've had your coffee. You're ready to go. He also wrote the book called Luke, right? It's one of the Gospels. And this is his sequel. This is part two. This is the follow-up. In other words, he said, here's the first 30 years. Here's the second 30 years. Here's Jesus going to the cross. Here's Jesus building his church. And this book, Acts, is a sequel to what we just finished. We went through the book of Mark, but it's the sequel of the Gospel. It's a sequel to his book, in particular, the book of Luke. All right, here we go. Verse 2, it says, he, he continues to say, it was the book that I wrote until the day that Jesus was taken up to heaven, the ascension. We'll see more about that in a minute. After giving Jesus giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, and after his suffering, Jesus, he presented himself to them, the apostles, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. That's interesting. One convincing proof he didn't feel like was enough. He gave them many convincing proofs to prove that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So after Jesus rose from the dead, for the next 40 days, he kept reappearing to his disciples. And, and he continued to speak about the kingdom of God. Now, if I were you, I would write in my margin, you write in your Bible like I do, I would write in my margin, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. And I want to read that. It's really important because it actually unpacks just a little bit more of what Luke just described here about Jesus appearing with many convincing proofs. In Acts, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look what it says. Paul goes on in this book to actually describe it a little more. He says, For what I received I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. You see, they can't get over it yet because they can't believe they witnessed a man who died come back to life and was resurrected. It's all they talk about. Just like if we saw that, it's all we would talk about. And he goes on to say, but here's what's amazing, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. You go, wait a minute, I thought there were only eleven because Judas betrayed Jesus. Well, Acts chapter 1 is going to deal with that, and all of a sudden we're going to have twelve again. So Paul's right in saying this. After that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And if you don't believe me, Paul said, you can go talk to them because most of them are still living, though some of them have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Now, here's what's fascinating to me. When you look back at these first century Christians, it's easy to think they just believed easily. But the truth is, they didn't believe because they wanted to be part of some kind of inspiring movement. They believed because the evidence was so overwhelming, despite the fact they were predisposed against the supernatural like you and I are, the evidence was so overwhelming they couldn't not believe. They were forced to believe despite what they wanted to think because Jesus kept reappearing and gave them convincing proofs, Paul said. It's the same way it says here where Luke says he kept reappearing every time over a period of 40 days. And after a while, they were so convinced that they actually were eating with, were hearing from, were walking with the resurrected Jesus that they went from being fearful. Remember, they didn't even show up at the tomb. They were so it was such a hard truth to believe, that all of a sudden they gave their life for this cause and they ended up being martyred because they refused to recant what was so obviously true to them. I find that so encouraging because let's be honest, Christianity is a hard truth. The fact that it's true doesn't mean that it's not a hard 
truth. And if you're here today and you're not yet a believer and you're here just kind of checking things out and you find it a little bit difficult at times to believe, well, welcome to the party. Because the truth is, it is a hard truth. And I find it encouraging that doubt is okay. We can kind of lean into what we know and it's okay to have some doubts because it is a hard truth. And the disciples, oh, they became convinced to the point of death, but it took some convincing. And I find that encouraging. Now listen, as Luke goes on, he says, Now on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, so this isn't like a ghost or an aberration that they're seeing. This is a physical Jesus. He's eating with them, and he gave them a unique command. He said, now I've already told you to go and make, right? He's already said that over and over again. But here's his command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. I would underline the word wait. You think, well, now that seems like that's against what you told us earlier. And there's a reason. He says, wait. Look what he says. He goes, I want you to wait for the gift. Well, what's the gift? Well, he goes on to describe. Here's what the gift is. My father promised you a gift, which you have heard me speak about. Here it is. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized. And here's the gift with the Holy Spirit. In other words, I know you've walked with me for three years. I know you've seen the miracles. I know that you've heard the teaching, and yet you're still not ready because you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses. This is what he's trying to teach them. So in the meantime, he says, you're going to go and make, that's your new assignment, but first, Wait on the Holy Spirit. And look at the next verse. He says, the people begin to get a little confused. They're like, okay, fine, fine, fine. But here, I've got this question. They gathered around Jesus and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, Jesus, I love what you're talking about. It sounds like a really big deal. The whole go and make disciples. You're going to be my witnesses. You know, it sounds like, okay, wait, Holy Spirit, big deal. Okay, got it. But are we going to be popular? Are we going to have power? Are we going to be in control? Because, you know, I was just a fisherman before you came along. I didn't have much, and I've taken this road with you. What's in it for me? Do we need to buy JesusRose.org? Get that URL. We can make it. We kind of leverage this whole thing. Got a marketing plan. Like, what do we need to do? What's in it for us? Don't we all ask that question? They can't help themselves. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and they keep going, yeah, but what about the kingdom of Israel? What's in it for us? What's in it for me? And watch the response of Jesus. He says, and he said, or let's see, where we got, verse, verse 7. And he said to them, it is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. And here it is, but you will receive power. Oh, uh, you want power? You're going to receive power, all right. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You go, what's the deal with the Holy Spirit? Isn't like, why is that different from the previous 30, 33 years of Jesus' ministry? But Jesus kept saying, I am one person ministering to one person at a time in one place. But when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit is going to minister through multiple people in multiple places at the same time. That's why he said back in John chapter 16, verse 7, I would even write that in your margin there. John chapter 16, verse 7, he actually says, let me go back here, he says, very truly I tell you, Jesus speaking, it is for your good that I go away. Because unless I go away, the Advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him 
to you. This is great news, he's saying. You want the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit in order to be my witness. Man, they're so confused, and they're thinking, boy, I hope you're going to give us more. And he goes, well, here it is. You will be my witnesses. In other words, you're not going to be famous. You're going to be witnesses. You're going to be pointing people to the famous one. I I love being a church of ordinary people pointing to an extraordinary God. We are witnesses to the extraordinary. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now you go, now what do those towns, what do those regions have to do with us here in Plano, Texas? Well, here's a map with three concentric circles that kind of give you a lay of the land that Jesus was talking about. And you can see Jerusalem in the middle, and then you see Judea, Samaria uh, in the second circle, and then, of course, the ends of the earth is everything else outside of that second circle. In the same way, we live in Plano. This, you could say, is our Jerusalem here in this church. And Jesus says the temptation is in the 2020. Uh, One church is for us to go, let's build our church, and then let's reach the rest of the world way out there overseas. And Jesus says, well, you got two out of three, but don't forget, you've got a region around you. You've got counties around you. You've got uh, the rest of the community within your county. You are responsible to make a difference right here, there, and beyond. This is what the Holy Spirit, it doesn't say then, it says and. This is something, the threefold strategy of of, uh, Acts chapter 1. Verse 8. Now, after that, everybody's like, okay, I don't fully understand it, Jesus. Can you give us more? And watch what Jesus pulls off in the next verse. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. And just like that, he's gone. After Bethlehem, after his entire life, We see him recruiting the disciples. We see him doing all these amazing things, going to the cross, being resurrected for 40 days, reappearing, and then all of a sudden he ascends and he's gone. That's why we often celebrate Ascension Day. It's 40 days after Easter because this is when it happened, 40 days after his resurrection. And they're sitting there doing what you and I would do if we saw Jesus go, like, float away. And we're wondering, what in the world does this mean? Look at the next verse. It says, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. And again, Luke doesn't give us more details, but we know these are some kind of heavenly messengers. And suddenly they speak. Watch what they say. Men of Galilee, now this is interesting because remember they're in Jerusalem, they're there for the Passover and they're renting their room, remember they've been there for a week or so, but they're from Galilee. And this heavenly messenger says, I know who you are, you're not from here, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him. Go into heaven. Now, if you heard that and you were the disciples, first of all, why are you standing here staring into the sky? I think it's okay to say, well, you know, our leader just floated up. It's kind of weird, and I can't help but watch, right? Pretty obvious. Thought heavenly messengers might have picked up on that one. And then they say, hey, here's the good news. He's coming back. Now, if you heard that, you know what you would think? Well, good. What time? Right? Is it a few minutes? 
I don't know, an hour, two? We got dinner at six, so is he gonna, we're going to have that knocked out by then? Do we have an extra place at dinner? Maybe a few days? But you're definitely going to think imminent, right? He's coming back. You've spent, he's changed your life, and he's coming back. Well, I love this because Peter begins to step up. And Peter, remember, he's gone through so much himself, and he goes, you know what? While we're waiting on Jesus, let's do this. We're, we're here in the Mount of Olives. Let's go back to Jerusalem where he said to wait. We'll go back to that little room we've rented. And then what we're going to do is we're, we're down to 11 disciples. We need to go ahead and vote somebody else in so we can be back to the right number of 12. Let's kind of be efficient during this downtime. That's essentially what Peter is thinking. I want you to see in the next verse, verse 12, it says, So then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. It's about a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they go upstairs to this room where they were staying. And I love this. We get the, all the disciples listed right here in this verse. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. Not Judas Iscariot, Judas the son of James. Now here's what's interesting. This is the same list that Luke mentions in Luke chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. This is the very last time, other than Peter, James, and John, because there's a different James that comes into the picture, other than Peter, James, and John, this is the last time these other disciples will ever be mentioned in the New Testament. But who's missing? Over the last three years, a group of people have been walking together, but there are two people who are missing. Can you name them? Who are the two people who are missing from this group? I hear you kind of whisper it. You got it. You got it right. You can say it louder. Judas and Jesus. Who said that? Way to go. Yes. Sandra Tollison. Very good. Did Yeah. You're teaching next weekend, okay? You got the job. Judas and Jesus are missing. Here's what I believe is the topic of conversation with every single conversation that's been happening in these few days. Can you believe Judas betrayed? Can you believe Jesus rose from the dead? You go and talk to somebody, hey, how you doing? Hey, can you believe Judas betrayed us? And can you believe Jesus rose from, that's all they would talk about. Of course it's all you would talk about. That's all we would talk about if we were in that moment. These two people that they've done life with for three years are completely gone. They can feel the void in the group. Well, what do you do when you're at that place? So we come back to our question, and that is, where do you go from here? When your Savior, you've witnessed the greatest miracle of all time, and he ascends, and your close friend, Judas, has completely betrayed you and the group. What do you do from here? Where do you go? And now they're about to act. And I think there's some things we can learn from what they do next. Some things in our life. You're wondering that maybe in your life today? Look at the next few words. It begins with, they all joined together. The way of Jesus is together. The most tempting thing when you find yourself in a place you didn't expect to be is to isolate, isn't it? But they all joined together. That's why this gathering is so important. And I want to say again, for those of you who are watching online, we're so grateful that you're able to do that. Some of you are out of town, out of state. Some of you aren't safe yet. You don't feel like you could be here in that place of health that you're in. 
And then some of you just have kind of gotten used to being at home. And you love, maybe you're eating some waffles right now. You're sitting on your couch. Life's good. I'm kind of jealous. But let me tell you, we want you to come on back. Because there's something about being together. There's something about meeting each other again. There's something about encouraging each other. Somebody may need your encouragement. And we just want to say to you, come on back. We'd love to see you again. Every weekend I meet somebody who says, this is my first weekend in over a year. And I love that because we were meant to do this together. The Jesus way is that we join together. Christianity is not a solo sport. We are always better together. And we see this in the disciples. When they come to the place, we are together. Amen. So we would love to have you back. We will clap when you walk through those doors. Maybe not. We won't embarrass you, but we'll certainly be grateful that you're here. All right. So watch what they do next. These next three words are powerful. Not only do they join together, look at this, they're constantly in prayer. This has got to be the most powerful tool that we have, yet the most overlooked tool that's open to us. They, the disciples, revealed who they trusted most by how they prayed. In the same way, you and I reveal who we trust the most in how we pray. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll say things like, I don't know what else to do but pray, right? And the better approach is, I don't know what else I will do, but I will always begin with prayer. They joined together, and then they had history's greatest prayer meeting. You say, how do you know it was history's greatest prayer meeting? Because what happens next in chapter 2? We're going to get there, but right now, look at what happened next. Look at who's at history's greatest prayer meeting. Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his, Jesus's brothers. Now, this is really an interesting family dynamic. I would even write in your margin, John chapter 7, verse 5. Here's why. Because in John chapter 7, verse 5, it tells us that the brothers of Jesus do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, of course not. They're brothers, right? I share a room with you. You're not God, right? This is one of the most powerful things. What would it take for you to convince your sibling that you're God? You ever thought about that? This is the battle Jesus is up against. And his brothers don't believe. Well, of course they don't believe. They're his brothers. And something changes in Acts chapter 1, and all of a sudden the brothers are there, and they become prominent in the story of the church and the story of faith. And there's only one explanation. They saw their brother die on a cross. And they saw their brother rise from the dead. And they realized once and for all, he's God. He's God the Son. Can you imagine? And all of a sudden, these brothers realize, he is my brother. He is my Savior. And they're there. And they'll be there from here on out. It's a pretty profound part of the verse, part of the story. Now, here we go. Because Peter is about to really step up. And I love this about Peter. It says... In those days, Peter stood up. I love this because, remember, Peter's the one who failed so publicly. And all of a sudden, for the first time, he steps up after Jesus has restored him post-resurrection. It's as if he's now learning to dance with a limp. And for the first time, he stood up 
to lead. In a moment where everyone is thinking this one thought, this isn't fair. Judas would do this. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I don't know why this had to happen. Why, 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 why? Which, by the way, when we come to the place of unexpected destinations, the worst question that we can get stuck on is why, isn't it? Often God doesn't give us the answer to that question. And so Peter steps up to lead in this moment of, of, of discouragement. I want you to see what he says. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers. They were numbering about 120. And he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. I know we're all talking about Judas. Why did Judas betray? I know we're all discouraged. I want you to see something, Peter says. Peter served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He's being truthful, even though he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. Can you imagine the holy hush in this moment? And with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. Graphically, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about it. So they called that field in their language Akeldama. That is, field of blood. And then watch this. For Peter said, It is written in the book of Psalms, May this place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. You might write Psalm 69. That's what he's referencing here. And he goes on to say, May another take his place of leadership. You might write Psalm 109. He's quoting from there. But do you see what it is that Peter is now doing? He's saying we're in an unexpected place where it doesn't feel right. We don't like it. We don't understand it. And Peter's the one that stands up and says, we better recognize it's unexpected to us, but it wasn't unexpected to God. And my disappointment does not change God's agenda and God's plan. He's been waiting for us here all these years. And we've now arrived in what is an unexpected place. And God welcomes us with open arms, waiting to have met us there. This has been prophesied all along, Peter says. Peter steps up and says, don't get stuck asking why. Don't get stuck because you don't like it. Don't get stuck because you don't understand it. Recognize you're in an unexpected place. And God's been waiting for you all along. I just want to give you this little bit of takeaway from chapter 1 already. When we find ourselves, and we all will, in that unexpected place, I think what we can already learn from their response is this. Lay down our expectations. It's got to start there. Lay down our expectations and join someone who will pray with you constantly. I want to say that's the first step every time. Lay down my expectations and join someone who will pray with me constantly. God's been waiting for you there. He's with you there. Don't go it alone, alone and don't try and reclaim the past. Embrace what is and find someone who will pray with you constantly. And that's what the disciples decided to do. And history is different because of it. Now, 
he decides to fill the final spot that's left on the discipleship board, right? The discipleship team. Look at verse 21, and we'll finish out the chapter. Therefore, if it is necessary, or it is necessary, he says, to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus has been living with us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. And one of these must become a witness with us to, of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Bersabbas, Bersabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. little jab there. Got what he deserved. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles, and now there are 12. Now, this is kind of like a casting of the, of the die, right? This is something that we're sort of familiar with. But this is something that was common in decision-making all throughout the Old Testament that they would cast lots. What's interesting is when we get to this moment, it's the last time we see that practice. Because after this, we get the Holy Spirit, and we no longer see casting of lots throughout the rest of the New Testament. All that to say, we still wrestle with decisions and making good decisions, don't we? And what is it that we're supposed to do when we face that moment of decision? And I think we're already seeing the pattern right here in Acts 1, and that is we gather with other people who will pray with us constantly. We seek wise counsel, and we seek the Lord with others. Seek the Lord with others. Seek the Lord with others, because the Holy Spirit is alive and powerful and wants to speak. Now, Having said all of that, as we finish through this um, book of Acts, I just want you to know, you're going to see over and over, and it's going to be tempting to make the people your hero. I just want to once again say, these aren't Christian superstars. They're just not, they're messed up people like me, messed up people like you. These are people who struggle with betrayal, with infighting, with insecurities, with stubbornness. These are people who, sometimes I, I hear people who want to read through the book of Acts and they go, that's what we should do. I wish we were like a church in Acts. I wish we were like an Acts 2 church. How many times have you heard that phrase? I, at the end of Acts 2, we see all these wonderful things that people were doing. We see people who were eating together, who were praying together, who were uh, being taught the apostles teaching together, and, and, and they're meeting in their houses together. And We can't help but think, well, that's a really good thing, so we should be an Acts 2 church. But what we sometimes overlook is the fact that, yeah, but they were meeting together daily. And they were selling everything they had to meet each other's needs. Well, let's skip that part. The other part we definitely want to do, right? But the truth is, what we have to realize is in this moment, remember, by the end of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has come. They aren't going and making. They're sitting and being. Because they're sure that Jesus is about to return any minute now. And when you think Jesus is about to return any minute, you don't go to work anymore. You just meet daily in the house. When you think Jesus is about to return any minute, then you sell everything you have because you're not going to need it long anyway. Let's just sustain everybody until he returns. It's imminent. That's what they're thinking. So they've sort of formed a holy huddle, and they're actually being disobedient to what Jesus has told them to do while they're gathering together at the end of Acts chapter 2. I say all that just to say this. I want to give you some tips as we go through the book of Acts that I think are really important as filters as we read it together. Number one, read it as descriptive, not prescriptive. There'll be a lot that we can learn from it like we just did at Acts chapter 1, but each time we want to look at it in context, 
And we want to realize that God is too created to do the same thing twice. And that this isn't so much a recipe as it is a record of history. It's a prescription, or it's a description. It's not a prescription. Number two, be hopeful and resist the urge to be cynical. It's, all, it's in us all. But when you look back, isn't it easy sometimes to think, man, I wish, I wish Christians were like that today. I, I wish I was like that today. I, I wish churches were like that today. I, I wish our faith was more like this today. And we look back, and all of a sudden, instead of being hopeful, we're cynical, we're critical, and we're looking back, and we're always thinking good old days, good old days, good old days. And can I just tell you what you already know? When you find someone who's always going good old days, good old days, good old days, you can almost be assured This is someone who's missing what God is doing today and is missing what God wants to do tomorrow. Our God, the Holy Spirit, is still alive and powerful today. So we want to learn and be hopeful for what he did. But he's the star and he's still alive and wanting to do something today. And we don't want to miss it over being over nostalgic with the good old days of Acts in the first century. Number three, notice that Jesus is the one building the church, not the apostles, this is a fulfillment of what he said in Matthew 16, 18, when he said, I will build my church. And you'll see him do that all throughout the book of Acts. And finally, remember, and this should be good news for us all, God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And that gives us all hope, doesn't it? He can use Peter. He can use every one of these who are disobedient when God said, go and make, and they decided to sit and stay. And he'll use us. He'll use us. No matter what we've done, no matter what we're struggling with, the power is in the Holy Spirit. Let me close with these three questions. Number one, like the apostles, you have an assignment to go and make disciples. It's that simple. But like them, there is a part of your story that you don't like. For them, it was the betrayal. For them, it was their own failures of denying Jesus. You have parts of your story you don't like. Maybe you can already identify what it is. Part of your story that maybe you don't understand in a relationship, in your job, in your career, in your, in, in your, with your children or, or with your dreams. There's part of your story you just don't like right now. Have you stopped to identify it? What is that part in your life? And number two, like the apostles, we're being asked to entrust that part of the story that we don't like into the hand of God. And when Peter stepped up in that moment, that's what he told those disciples and all those who were following. He said, don't get stuck trying to reclaim what's gone. Move forward with the part you don't like by trusting it all with God. And that's a huge step of faith. And these disciples decided to do it. And history was changed. Number three, is there an area of your life where you sense The Holy Spirit wants you to grow, wants to change you, wants to grow you. Or maybe there's a group of people he's leading you toward to be his witness. Would you just talk with him about that this week? God, invite me into what you want to change in me. Make me aware. God, invite me into who you want me to be your witness. God, would you just reveal that to me? Don't let me wander around. Help me, God, to go. And make disciples. Well, the beautiful thing is, this is, in Acts chapter 1, the greatest prayer meeting in history. Why? Because of what happened in chapter 2. You know what happened in chapter 2? That made it the greatest prayer meeting in history? 
Well, you got to come back next week. And that's when we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 2. I'm so grateful that you're here today. And as Dane said earlier, if you're new or newer, and I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, my wife Ginger and I, we're going to be in the Connection Center, which if you go through these doors across the hallway, there's a room there with some couches. And five minutes after this service ends, we're going to be in there. We'd love to meet. It's going to last about 10 minutes, so it's very brief. But we'd love just to meet you and connect with you after the service day. As every service, if you would like to be supported in prayer, we would be honored to pray with you right here behind these curtains in that little room that we've created there. There are always people after the service that would love to pray with you today. Well, let's close with our verse together, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Would you stand as we close together today, as we prepare for our final song and worship? Would you stand and would you say that out loud with me one more time? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1-8. Let's pray. Father, we recognize as we read through this incredible story, what began after your resurrection, resurrecting your son Jesus, is you sent your Holy Spirit, and that changed everything. It's our story. That was chapter 1. We're chapter 2021. Father, you're still building your church, and nothing will stop you. And for that, we give you the glory. And we pray all these things in the power of your risen Son, Jesus. Amen.